from the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse, located in the center of the universe that is Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author, and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome, everyone, to Episode 6 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We are, as always, glad you have joined us. Now, before we get into today's episode, I want to once again encourage all of you to head over to iTunes or thewayofimprovement.com to download past episodes or, or subscribe to the podcast. We also hope you will consider writing a review at iTunes and telling your friends of what we are up to in this little corner of the podcasting world. As always, Drew Durley Hermeling, our producer, is with me. Drew, what have you been up to since our last episode? Well, we're entering into conference season, which is an important time for grad students like me. I'll be attending a number of conferences on early American history, early American studies, and the theoretical approaches to those fields. These are the kinds of things that my wife always, I try to explain these things to my wife, and she's always very confused and bored by the by the subject. But for a grad student, I think this is pretty exciting stuff. Uh, it will help me in my approach to my own research moving forward. Yeah, I was just recently talking to one of my former students. Well, actually, she's still my student. She's a senior. And uh, we were talking about the importance, too, of conferences uh, in terms of networking as well. Yeah, absolutely. And these are definitely some opportunities for me to get some face time with some of my uh, my historical heroes, as uh, some of my students call them, my brain crushes. <laughs> That's great. That's a great way. I like that, brain crushes. So, John, have you come down from your Mount Vernon High yet? <laughs> That's a good way to put it, Drew, uh, Mount Vernon High. I think so. Uh, I left last week. It was very bittersweet. Uh, I did manage to get some final thoughts about my month at Mount Vernon written uh, over at the blog. So head over to www.thewayofimprovement.com and check those out. Uh, this week, I'm hoping to get to another archive in the region so that I can keep up that momentum uh, from uh, my visit to Mount Vernon. So I'm uh, hard at work on a new project and uh, hoping to uh, get a lot accomplished before my sabbatical ends uh, this summer. And you have a new book that's just recently come out. I got a note from my father-in-law saying he saw a review of it, a uh, very glowing review. So how are things going with that? Yeah, we've talked about this new book uh, in the last couple of episodes, uh, The Bible Cause, A History of the American Bible Society. Uh, actually, I have my first speaking engagement on the book this week. I was telling my wife, you know, I'm, I'm so used to talking about was America founded as a Christian nation. Uh, I now have to sort of think about a, a public talk related to this book on the American Bible Society. Um, I was happy to read Tommy Kidd's very positive review of the book in the Weekly Standard. Uh, and over the course of the next few months, the good folks at Oxford University Press will be setting up some more pro promotional stuff. So stay tuned to the blog to learn more. I think we're going to try to do also do some stuff in the fall in conjunction with the September release of the revised edition of my Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? So uh, very interesting stuff here about religion and nationalism, Christianity and nationalism. In many ways, I may have said this already on the podcast, but in many ways I see this Bible Society book, which really starts uh, in the 18-teens and 1820s and goes up to the present 
as a sort of second volume to the Was America Founded as a Christian Nation book. Speaking of that book, I should also say that Oxford University Press is offering listeners to the podcast and readers of the blog a 30% discount on the book. So head over to thewayofimprovement.com, scroll down, or maybe we'll put up another post and find that promotional code and you can get that discount. So, Drew, enough of uh, what's going on here over the last couple of weeks. Let's talk about this episode of the podcast. I know you've been waiting for this one. Uh, by the way, we are calling this episode Narrating the Past. Well, you know, John, when we first sat down and started thinking about where we wanted our podcast to go, getting Nate DeMeo on the show was a high priority for me. I've been a fan of his work for a long time, and I think he is one of the leaders in the world of history podcasting. In fact, if you look at the the charts on iTunes, you'll see he's always at the top. But before we hear more from Nate, I do think you have a story for us today, John. In 1829, an American Bible Society agent working in the western United States met a young female Irish immigrant. Let's call her Mary, who he claimed was rigidly educated in the Roman Catholic faith. Before arriving in America, Mary was planning to spend her life in an Irish convent, but when her father decided to migrate, he brought her with him. Upon arrival, Mary continued to practice Catholicism under the watchful eye of her father, who the American Bible Society agent described as a very wicked man, but bigotedly attached to the forms and ceremonies of his church. Mary was trained to believe that there was salvation in no other. Her spiritual life took a drastic turn, however, when a young neighbor boy who was playing in her house dropped a portion of a New Testament he had carried with him. She picked up the pages and began to read, concealing the book from her father, who had taught her that it was a sin to read the scriptures without note or comment. In the course of her reading, Mary became convinced that Catholicism would not answer in the last great day. She came to grips with the sinful state of her soul and became anxious about her salvation, all the while keeping her spiritual searching away from her father for fear of punishment. Without a teacher to explain what she was reading, Mary pressed on, guided only by the words of the small New Testament portion. As the anxiety-induced tears rolled down her face, she eventually came to grips with what she called the pardoning love of God through a crucified Savior, and found that the pages of the Bible, those leaves from the tree of life, as she put it, had healed her quote-unquote wounded spirit. A revival had commenced in Mary's town, and she decided, unbeknownst to her family, to attend several of those evangelical meetings. As Mary watched... New converts paraded to the front of the church to make public professions of faith, and she felt an ardent desire, she said, to do the same. The agent of the American Bible Society counseled Mary, but she knew that as soon as word of her conversion reached her father, he would immediately banish her from his house. She even feared that his rage might lead him to take her life. As the agent wrote, I had never before thought it possible for an individual in this land of freedom 
to be placed in circumstances so trying. As the American Bible Society agent continued to talk with Mary, he was surprised at just how much she knew about the Protestant way of salvation, despite the fact that she had no one to instruct her and no books to read beyond the Testament that had fallen into her hands, and the teachings of the Spirit which had indicted the Word. Eventually, Mary did make a profession of faith and joined the local Protestant church, leaving her Catholicism behind. The American Bible Society provided her with a full Bible, Old and New Testaments, to replace the small portion of the New Testament she had been reading. She received it with tears of gratitude, as she would later write. Mary continued to hide her newfound faith and her new Bible from her father and prayed that someday he too might come to saving faith in Christ. Mary's story tells us several things about the American Bible Society in the decades preceding the American Civil War. The American Bible Society believed that the Bible had the spiritual power to send people like Mary on an entirely new trajectory of life. It was no mere coincidence that Mary stumbled across the Bible on the floor of her house. It was a providential act of God. The agents working on behalf of the Bible cause were appointed to deliver the Word of God wherever it was needed, but they also believed that the Bible was a supernatural book that could lead people to salvation without the aid of a preacher or teacher. Mary's story was published in the monthly extracts of the American Bible Society to show that the Word of God, without any commentary, could bring people into the kingdom defeating a growing Catholic menace and advancing the cause of Protestantism in America. Though American Bible Society agents often took opportunities to preach and teach, most of the time they merely dropped off a copy of the Bible at a house, on a train, or a ship, or to someone they met on the road, and let the Spirit do the rest. The American Bible Society agent who encountered Mary was not only recording yet another story of personal salvation, but he was relaying an uplifting account of another soul saved from what he believed to be tyrannical Catholicism. Mary's strong-willed father, a man who she believed might kill her before becoming a Protestant, was representative of all that was wrong with Rome. Indeed, the agent had never thought it was possible, quote-unquote, in this land of freedom, for the life of an individual to be placed in jeopardy because of her religious convictions. The story that I just hold comes from the opening vignette of chapter 6 of my new book on the American Bible Society. The title of this chapter is The Bible is the Religion of Protestants. As you can tell, it is a dark chapter. I chronicle the American Bible Society's involvement in the anti-Catholicism that defined much of American life in the decades prior to the American Civil War. In doing this book, one of the things I struggled with was how to write the history of an institution in a way that would prove compelling and attractive to readers. I tried to pull this off through narrative. I'm not sure if I succeeded. Perhaps the reviewers will tell me that. But the records of the American Bible Society are filled with interesting stories. 
and I wanted to tell as many as possible. Most of them, I should add, did not make the cut. I haven't written this kind of narrative since my first book about the rural diarist Philip Vickers Fithian, and even in that book, I really did not turn to narrative form until the last chapter or two. My other books, I'm thinking here of Why Study History and Was America Founded as a Christian Nation, had stories too, but these books were largely didactic and analytical in nature. The Bible cause has more stories and narrative than all of my other books combined. In writing The Bible Cause, I became convinced of the power of narrative, the kind of storytelling that Nate DeMeo will talk about in a few minutes. Historians tell stories about the past, stories that have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Most stories have a moral, but the best historical storytellers do not preach. The lesson of the story is implied in the narrative. If the story is told well, it will always be evident to the reader or the listener. We use narrative to make sense of our world. Stories are how we bring order to our own human experiences and the human experiences of others. When I was writing my book, Why Study History, I read Jonathan Gottschall's book, The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human. Gottschall reminds us that the mind quote, yields helplessly to the suction of story, unquote. If a quick glance at the New York Times bestseller list over the course of the last decade is any indication, the history books that have reached the largest audience are written by narrative historians. Writers such as David McCullough, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and the late Stephen Ambrose have brought the past alive to ordinary readers through their gifted prose as storytellers. They have proved that a book about the past in the hands of a skillful historian writer can be a page-turner. This is because, as historian William Cronin has written in an often-cited 1992 article in the Journal of American History, quote, As storytellers, we commit ourselves to the task of judging the consequences of human actions, trying to understand the choices that confronted people whose lives we narrate, so as to capture the full tumult of the world. In the dilemmas they faced, we discover our own, and at the intersection of the two, we locate the moral of the story. If our goal is to tell tales that make the past meaningful, then we cannot escape struggling over the values that define what meaning is. So let's tell more stories. As Cronin has said in another context, Historians can't afford to be boring. Our job is too important. Thanks, John. I think your thoughts about storytelling provide a nice setup for our interview with one of the best historical storytellers working today. Nate DeMeo is the creator and author of the podcast The Memory Palace. He's also the co-author of Pawnee, The Greatest Town in America, which was a finalist for the 2012 Thurber Prize for American Humor. He also spent a decade or so in public radio, and you may have heard him on All Things Considered, Morning Edition, or Marketplace. If you head over to iTunes and look up the rankings for the top history podcasts in the United States, you will find the Memory Palace at or near the top. 
In other words, folks, this is one of the podcasts we're chasing here at The Way of Improvement Leads Home. And the brain behind the Memory Palace uh, is Nate DeMeo. Nate, welcome to The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, we are really excited that you're with us because Drew and I are both big fans uh, of the Memory Palace. We've been listening to it uh, for some time now. Uh, and to start off, you know, what is your, you know, you're, you're obviously doing a history podcast, or at least that's how uh, iTunes categorizes it. I don't know if you would categorize it that way. But do you have any training or what's your interest in uh, in history? You know, um, I don't have any specific training, um, you know, besides uh, my training and sort of on-the-job training as a journalist. And, uh, you know, I, I work for NPR for a number of years and for the show Marketplace and for various public radio shows. And you know, I, that really was my kind of training ground. And, and, I, and I discovered sort of early on in the process of, of doing the work and making them sort of ready to go out in the world um, that... The training ultimately, you know, between the historian, as I understand it, and as I, you know, as I've spoken with historians about their their own work, uh, and that of the journalist is ultimately kind of the same thing. Like you are both sort of, uh, you know, trying to dig for facts, you know, create narrative from those facts, and you know, try to be as responsible and truthful uh, as possible in in their presentation, and so. You know, while I don't have um, you know a particular uh, background in in the sort of the, the work of the historian, um, I don't think the the work always felt very familiar to me um, from what I was ar- what I was already doing. But in terms of sort of a background in history as a subject in in history is is you know as inspiration, um, you know, that probably goes back to uh, my kind of late teens and early twenties. You know, I was. Uh, you know, I I always, you know, kind of enjoyed history in school and, you know, was very, very good every year when we would do this fairly, uh, uh, now that I think of it, fairly kind of wrote an absurd history project where we, we would essentially just go to the library, read American Heritage magazine, find some article that kind of grabs us and then write a report about it. And all that really was now that I think about it right now, I haven't thought about this in years. All you were doing was just kind of synthesizing things and putting them in your own words. And it was the easiest thing in the world for me to do. Um, and I was very, very good at it. And would always get like, you know, always get a pluses on these projects, but it, it was absurd to, to, to kind of think that this was historical work, you know, to me, it was just kind of storytelling. Um, but you know, I, I might not have really realized exactly how the centrality of storytelling, uh, you know, to the kind of project, to the project of of writing history, you know. And as I as I got a bit older, um, you know, in my early mid twenties, one I was living in Providence, Rhode Island, and one of the things that I would kind of do, uh, you know, for fun on a weekend um, or on sort of an aimless weekday as I was lightly employed at the time was to kind of like hop in the car and, and explore visiting historic homes and going to the kind of various historic sites, um, in, in and around new England, um, particularly, uh, art museums. You know, I, I fell in love, uh, with, uh, with art history and, um, uh, the history of sort of American art, um, as this kind of uh, pl- place that has this kind of arena that was kind of giving voice to, you know, changes that were happening in people's lives. 
And over and over and over again, as I would go to these different historic sites, I would go to these museums, uh, art museums and like, you know, Lexington and Concord and places like that. Um, you know, uh, you'd, you'd see some stuff you'd see, you know, you'd see, uh, you know, a buckskin or you'd see, you know, a musket, um, you know, or, or a doily, you know, tatted by, you know, someone a long time ago and over and over and over again, I would find that would be very rare that you would actually feel connected to the person that once held that object or created that object. And I kind of started to wonder why, you know, I started, was trying to figure it out, like why there would be sometimes I would go to a museum and I would just be like knocked out. Like I'd feel so connected to, you know, the wielder of that musket or the tatter of that, you know, uh, handkerchief. Um, and other times I just wouldn't. And, uh, you know, for, for a while there in, in my mid twenties, before I sort of got into, journalism and and kind of you know found the right fit for myself um you know the career that i was thinking of doing besides being in in punk rock bands was uh i thought about sort of uh you know getting into museum work um but uh you know a, a sort of love of radio and a love of the stories that i was hearing on this american life kind of took this this kind of instinct that i had to to kind of you know make kind of beautiful and you know insightful and kind of poignant stories um, you know, from drawn from real life, uh, that instinct sort of uh, led to radio as opposed to sort of a- either academia or uh, kind of museum work. Right, right. In our last episode, interestingly enough, we had a uh, we had a, a educator from the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, the chief of education, and I think he would love to have heard or hear. He will hear, hopefully. Um, these these remarks about museums because museums really do cultivate this kind of sense of empathy uh with people who are different with the past with objects and so forth and over and over again uh i as i talk to students and other history buffs uh, i hear similar stories about the power of museums the power of historical sites uh to uh inspire young people uh into into the field of history now what about podcasting uh you now i read in a slate interview that you did i think it was on the gist maybe or something uh something like that that you actually left npr to start this podcast um you know maybe you could clarify that i mean did you did you uh make a conscious effort to sort of leave uh a career as a journalism to podcast are you still doing journalism um and what was it about podcasting that attracted you Sure. You know, the, the memory palace started, um, in, or I started the memory palace, I guess it didn't, guess it didn't happen on its own, but, um, I started the memory palace, uh, at the end of 2008. And, uh, at the time, um, you know, I was, uh, I had left, uh, marketplace, um, really, uh, with the sort of sense that I wanted to kind of do something of my own, you know, I just sort of had this, this kind of drive to create something and, um, you know, and create a program. And I, essentially like I was in this, I had this really good resume, you know, and I was, I was a little bit of sort of like a young Turk, you know, I I just sort of like done really well at a a relatively young young age and kind of knew that I was in a good position to go out and create something. And, you know, I did have this love of history and did have this sense of, of that there were different ways to tell historical stories, ways that, that could, um, you know, connect with, uh, you know, listeners who didn't fancy themselves history buffs, um, you know, or, um, I just felt like there was kind of a, a market opening 
out there in public radio for a history show because there wasn't one at the time and it felt like the humanities category that that um, in a lot of ways public radio was ignoring that it shouldn't and so I just kind of had this kind of practical you know uh, kind of market-based vision you know, to create a show and and you know I, I left uh, you know marketplace for kind of a number of reasons but but mostly it was this kind of drive to, to do my own thing and so at the time I was kind of juggling um, you know contract work for you know reporting on pop culture for for NPR out here in LA. And I had created this uh, podcast, um, you know, to kind of road test segment types um, for what I hope to be an, uh, uh, eventually be like an hour long weekend public radio show like This American Life or or Studio 360 um, for art. And, um, you know, it's kind of juggling, juggling the two. And the beauty of podcasting at the time was that, that there was just no, there was no barrier for, for distribution that like I had all the equipment at home. I was doing, I knew exactly what I was doing, um, you know, with the editing equipment and I just knew it'd be very easy for me to do this and, you know, to put it out and I wouldn't have to, you know, fit it into, um, you know, fit the format into some existing public radio show. You know, I wasn't, didn't have to pitch anyone on it. I didn't have an editor and you know i could just kind of try things out and and find my feet um both behind the microphone which i hadn't had a lot of experience doing and find my feet in terms of like you know seeing if i could make make these things that i kind of had in my head sound the way that i wanted them to but very very early on um thanks to kind of you know i guess the, the historical reality of it besides the you know the invention of the podcast you know which hadn't preceded it you know by all that long um was the advent of facebook you know, it was just that period where, where you were willing to accept a friend request from someone you barely liked. And so suddenly you'd have like hundreds of friends and they would have hundreds of friends and everyone was kind of excited about it. So people were, were, you know, no one was wary of posting. No one was wary of, of, you know, the equivalent of re of, of sharing sort of, you know, retweeting, um, or whatever you, whatever you still call it on Facebook. Um, and so, you know, I was just like, Hey friends, um, I'm doing this thing. And so between a, a public radio friends and just this sort of like growing active social network, like very quickly it went from having like 36 random listeners to 3,600 or something like that. And then, you know, from that very quickly, it went from 3,600 to like 36,000 because, um, you know, one of the sort of New York com blogs mentioned it and Boing Boing, uh, the sort of uh, tech culture uh, blog, um, kind of adopted it briefly. Um, and, you know, a couple of people got excited about it there. And, you know, so suddenly there was like a sizable audience, you know, for these stories that, you know, while their original impetus was to, you know, kind of demonstrate what I could do in a larger format, um, the smaller format was just like, wait a second, this is what I like doing. I, I, I like these, I, I like these short stories, like at the, at the essence of what I'm trying to do here, you know, is brevity. And, you know, because there's, there are no barriers from, you know, uh, there's no barriers to doing this. If, if there's an audience, um, you know, maybe I can, uh, maybe this right here is the show. And you recently hired an assistant, a research assistant? Yeah, I recently hired a production assistant and literally within the last week or so um, uh, just started with a research assistant uh, who herself is, you know, she's an academic and, and um, you know, and I... I explicitly wanted to hire wanted to hire someone who would know more more than I would, <laughs> you know. That not only was like really sort of grounded in kind of the academic work and kind of like knows where to dig things up that I might not, 
Um, but you know, who also that I could, you know, be able to say, Hey, here's my sense of the way this works. And, you know, who could push back and be like, well, actually my sense is this, um, you know, the, the choice ultimately was between, you know, like a lot of sort of very talented, very sort of eager, um, you know, researchers and, and whatnot in different fields. But I realized that with most people, I'd be kind of guiding them. Um, and I realized the opportunity of, of hiring someone with a really deep academic background, um, you know, there'd be times when, when she might be able to guide me and also that, you know, I could really, you know, um, it wouldn't have to, there's sort of a level of self-direction, um, that, uh, that would be sort of inherent in the job. Yeah. Well, there you go. All you struggling graduate students out there who listen to this podcast, <laughs> uh, instead of, you know, if you can't find that academic job, there are always research assistant positions available at some of the big podcasts. Maybe we'll hire <laughs> one someday, Drew. Um, tell us a little bit, uh, Nate, tell us a little bit about the, the title, the memory palace. Uh, what does that mean? Why did you choose this title? Uh, you know, what, what is that? Sure. So, um, a memory palace, um, you know, and, and I am not an academic historian. And in fact, I, I, um, so I know I'm getting some of these facts wrong and that's just the way it's going to have to be. Um, but, uh, you know, a memory palace, it, it's a mnemonic device. And so, uh, you know, long, long time ago, there was an ancient Greek philosopher. I'm not exactly sure which one. Um, uh, and he, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, oration was the sort of mode of the day, both in t- entertainment and academia. Um, he would train his students t- to remember uh, long passages of text uh, by creating this thing that eventually became called the memory palace. But in a nutshell, you would go down to like the marketplace and you would you you would have a speech in your head and you would um, be trained to sort of like walk to walk around the marketplace and be like, OK, stare at that you know fruit cart while you remember four score and seven years ago today, and then turn around and stare at that, you know, uh, stare at that hat hat stand and, and remember the next bit. And so then when you go up on stage and you start to remember your uh, thing, instead of having, trying to remember all those words, you are, you, those words are tied to, a, you know, kind of a visual memory and, and therefore like it, it will flow out. And, and from there, like the sort of next innovator, um, you know, would do the same, decided to like create the same sort of devices by using these kind of imaginary spaces. So rather than actually walk, walk down to the marketplace to do it, you were supposed to imagine, you know, your, your home or your childhood home and, and imagine yourself walking into that home. And when you open the door, you know, you remember four score and seven years ago today. And when you, you know, turn and look at the hat rack, you, you remember that you remember the next section and on and on and on. And it just kind of flows out. And I really like that. First of all, I like the name. I think it's catchy. But I like the idea that um, that I'd be sort of creating this kind of, you know, in the listener's head, this kind of sense, this kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? This imaginary space um, kind of filled with kind of different memories, um, you know, that would only kind of live there, that your sense of the different people um, that I might talk about and the different events that I might talk about um, would be the images in, you know, in your head that were, you know, created from nothing and that kind of like live, uh, you know, personally for you in the kind of uh, the, the spaces you kind of create in, in your own memory. And I just kind of, I thought it was a, kind of a lovely image um, and also a memorable title. 
Yeah, Drew and I before we before we had got you on the on the show here, we were actually talking about that very idea. So, do you see yourself? You know, if you were to think of yourself uh, in a sort of one or two word identity, are you a historian, a podcaster, a purveyor of memory, uh, you know, a journalist who tells stories, um, a little bit of everything? I mean, how do you how do you see yourself? What do you what do, you know, other than sort of a po- someone who produces a podcast? I mean, what are you what is your identity? You know, I, I think that I think that I. You know, I think that I tell stories in the radio, you know, and, you know, I think that that I, you know, I think, you know, when I list, you know, when I write, when I fill out tax forms, you know, I say writer and I feel like that's probably true. You know, even though, you know, it doesn't say sort of everything about the podcast itself, but I do feel like I've come to kind of like, you know, accept or embrace or whatever. Um, the sense of sort of myself as kind of like a writer and engaging in the sort of like same practice that, that other people who call themselves writers do. I would say storyteller cause it seems right, but boy, I don't know. There's something sort of, uh, the, there's the, 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 the phrase, you know, storyteller is, is kind of soured in my head when I think of like, you know, you know, kind of like bad public, you know, bad, uh, public library, uh, you know, speakers or something like that. But yeah, I I would I kind of begrudgingly accept storyteller, I, I guess. But but writer and and guy who tells stories on the radio just kind of uh, fills it for me. Well, I think you're underselling yourself actually as a historian because what you do is is actually very very interesting and good history. I think Drew, you wanted to follow up on this. So I mean, I'm thinking here of your your recent episode on the Syrian migrants to the to Dakota, right? And you know, in history seminars, I my professors are always telling me, I have to make a strong argument. You have to make a very explicit argument. You have to tell the reader exactly what your argument is, and then you have to defend it with evidence. And instead, you make a, a pretty compelling argument that's silent and it's implied because you have this, this story about a Syrian migrant who immigrant in a, in a time that is not, you know, the, the contemporary political hot button Syrian immigrant. And so I was just wondering why you chose or, or what you think the importance is of presenting history in these small narrative vignettes without any, any real signaling of what the argument is. Um, you know, I think that there's a couple of things. One is just that like, um, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, the only history I really read for the most part is things that are, are explicitly um, being read for research, um, you know, for specific stories. And in part because, um, like, I don't know, uh, I mean, this, this is, I mean, I, as I'm about to say this, I, I understand how, how, what a ludicrous statement it is, but I don't know how much, how important kind of history is to me. You know, obviously it's the work of my life, but on the other hand, like, I don't know that like every, that like everything needs to be remembered. I don't know that every, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't walk around feeling like, oh, here we go again. We're doomed to repeat this thing that we should have, we should have learned in 1935 or whatnot. Um, but where it is important to me is, is as a way to kind of illuminate, you know, my present existence, you know, that, that in order, you know, that there's something that I personally need in my life, you know, with kind of connecting to, um, uh, you know, the, the kind of process of existence and, and the, the fact that lives are, that lives are built on top of each other in a way, you know, that, that, um, 
you know, to be reminded of the, the youngness of the nation, you know, uh, you know, the youngness of the city that I live in and to, you know, to be kind of reminded like as like a citizen that, you know, if, you know, Watergate to now, you know, is only 43 years, then, uh, then, you know, if the, the radical change that happened, you know, it, from 1932 to 1942, um, you know, that is a mere 10 years. If the Beatles, you know, put out all those records in only five or six years, then, you know, things can change very quickly that, you know, political change is, is more possible than you anticipate it will, will be that, you know, cultural change is, you know, is rapid and violent and, and thrilling and, you know, if you if you're not paying attention, you know, to pop culture, then you're going to you're going to miss you know things that are vitally important, um, you know, to the way we live today. And so, you know, to me, when when I am you know looking for looking for story ideas, um, you know, it's not it's not, for instance, you know, from a practical standpoint, it's not like oh, the Fourth of July is coming up. Let me find a good finding father story. It is what do I need? It's in a very real way. It is, what do I need in my life right now? You know, it's like, what, what else am I watching? What is happening in the news? You know, what's happening in my life as a parent or as a husband or as a friend or as a, you know, or as a music listener or whatever it might be, um, that is moving me or I'm wrestling with. And, you know, how do these other stories kind of connect to that or illuminate that? And so there is this really sort of practical, kind of personal use, you know, for the way that I, you know, go and look for stories. And, you know, the debate about um, immigration and, and particularly about, um, you know, Muslim in, Im- immigration, you know, that's that's cropped up in the last several months. Um, you know, one of the places that I've turned to to kind of like understand that and, and, and filter that is, you know, is historically, you know, and to you know, and that's essentially the the way that any of the, the pieces that I've done that, that might be like slightly more argumentative, that at the end of it, you'll be like, oh, this guy's got a point or this guy has a particular, you know, if it's not an ax to grind, it's an ax to kind of like, you know, uh, let you know that I have, <laughs> let you know that I own this ax. Um, you know, whether it's, whether it's um, uh, a piece called We've Forgotten James Powell, which which strangely, like I wrote before the, um, before the, the, the incident in Ferguson, you know, or it's, you know, the, the most explicitly political one is probably the one about, um, the, uh, the, the William Bedford Forrest monument in, uh, uh, in Memphis. Um, I think that ultimately, you know, not only do I feel like, uh, that there's something more powerful about on some level, just kind of letting the facts speak for themselves, you know, of just kind of like, you know, of in this case with the, the Syrian refugees, like I, you know, believe wholeheartedly, you know, in that, that the sort of spirit of America is in, you know, is in, is embedded in invention and the best of America is, is, you know, you know, is embodied in, you know, the immigrant experience and the sort of like, you know, collectivization of our, 
of our culture, you know, uh, of the, you know, the, 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 you know, expansion of what it means to be America, you know, of that, the sort of like great kind of like, you know, pulsing and, and retracting and pulsing and retracting of, of new people coming in and being absorbed in the culture, but changing it as they absorb, you know, that, that great sort of like, you know, expansion of, of, you know, uh, of, of what, you know, of American identity, um, you know, is, you know, is so, you know, I am, I am the grandson of, of immigrants and, 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 you know, and I am entirely aware that, that the way that people, you know, felt about Italians, um, in the, in the mid 1930s isn't terribly, you know, isn't terribly different than, than the way that they've, you know, people felt about, um, you know, Syrians now. And so I, you know, I think that, you know, it's not just sort of like for fear of listening, you know, for fear of losing listeners or whatever, that I might not be sort of more explicitly political. I simply don't think I need to be, you know, I think that, that, you know, by, by choosing stories and by, um, you know, by essentially sharing what I find beautiful about those stories or what I find, you know, moving about those stories or, or what I find, you know, occasionally infuriating about those stories. Um, you know, I have to kind of trust, um, that, um, that, that the things that are sort of implicit, um, uh, you know, don't, uh, not only do not only do I not need to need to make them explicit if I've done my job correctly. Um, I think that everyone would be. I think that listeners would be worse off if they if they were more explicit. Um, you know, uh, listeners are smart; they can handle it. Yeah, Nate. I mean, this is. I mean, again, uh, don't undersell yourself as a historian here, because I think what you're doing is you're doing history here. And the best historians, I think, exactly what you just said. I think the best historians are ones who uh, do not preach, right, or do not give political commentary, but yet they're constantly traveling, time traveling, so to speak, right, back and forth between the stories of the past. Uh, and how those stories relate to present issues. And I think I think that's what I think makes your podcast so appealing, at least to me, is that, you know, you're, you're you know, you're, just what you said about immigration, right? This is a hot issue right now. And here's a story that illuminates those issues. So uh, so so I, I think you're more of a historian than you think you are, even though you don't read much history. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier in the interview, you were talking about your love of museums and uh as my um as my research uh, tells me here uh you have actually had an opportunity uh with the podcast the memory palace uh to be involved in a museum exhibit at the metropolitan uh museum of art if i'm not mistaken on a gilded age furniture of all things tell us a little bit about that experience and uh how you got connected with this um with this exhibit Sure. You know, I would say the one, um, if there was any sort of, you know, kind of chip I had on my shoulder or bone to pick to the universe for a number of years doing the, the memory palaces was that, you know, I really did, you know, I knew that what I was doing was pretty good, you know, like I, I knew that, 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 I, that there was like a, that I had like a fairly like unique voice in you know, the sort of world of American history. And I was always kind of like, you know, it's kind of strange that like, I'm, I know that I'm doing this stuff like at a nice, you know, that, that it's professional quality and that, that there's something kind of unique about it and that there are also these kind of like bite-sized chunks. And I, I was always kind of wondering on some level, like why, like, you know, museums hadn't reached out or something. 
And so to get, you know, a call, and it was a literal, or to get an email um, from the Met uh, was kind of like, it was, you know, it was it was sort of like the, the call that I'd been waiting for for years. And in some ways, because, of, because it was the Met, it was kind of the call I'd been waiting for all my life because I had had a very... Um, you know, when, you know, I spoke earlier about this, this period of my twenties where I was going to a lot of museums and really kind of falling in love with history. I'm not sure any, any museum or, or any museum visit, um, ever did that more for me than a trip I sort of took to the Met, um, in my, when I was probably, you know, 23, 24, you know, with a friend from high school who was living in New York and, and we were both really into art, um, of all types. And we just took a trip uptown and just had this sort of like wonderful, you know, kind of formative heady experience um you know at the museum sort of like you know it's uh, kind of in, you know both like kind of engaged with the art in this way that was very moving but also just engaged with the sense of of the museum itself as this as this um institution that you know that created meaning meaning by the by the fact of its mere you know by its choices and you know created history um by the way it organized history that, that the way that we understood art and the way that we understood um you know art's value um was was being made right there in that building and had for years and and that the choices were were um you know occasionally arbitrary and and politically um politically grounded and and historically grounded and i i it was really sort of a a, a very kind of moving and kind of formative experience and I really love that place. And so, uh, you know, uh, when someone, you know, reached out to me, you know, to see if I'd be interested in working with them um, and creating a, a, essentially a, a unique Memory Palace episode um, to coincide uh, with and be a part of um, this exhibit on, on uh, you know, this furniture designer uh, in the 19th century and specifically to this for this new period room um you know, the sort of recreated uh, space um, that they were building in the American wing. Um, it was, it was kind of a dream. And, uh, it was, and so, you know, I, I have yet to listen to this piece that I created um, in the context of, of the room itself, since it's, you know, been constructed and, and uh, in a few weeks I'm going to get to go. And uh, uh, I, you know, I really kind of expected to be, you know, a, a kind of moving event for me. So how does this work? They, I mean, it's the Worsham Rockefeller Dressing Room, which is a, a late 1870, early 1880s uh, uh, dressing room, a Gilded Age dressing room. And your podcast that you designed for this, it's 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 you hit a button or something and it plays or how, what what are the logistics in all of all of this you can uh you uh, from what i understand there's some things that are even though it's been up for months i think there's some things that that are a little bit of a work in progress but you know you can listen to it through the memory palace feed while you're there in the room there is also like uh, you can listen to it on the, you know there's a, a met app um and there is also uh, uh there's like a, a, a there's there's a link written right there on the wall um right beneath my name in the in the met which is pretty cool as we wrap up, you know, I I did want to touch on one thing. Um, I, if I had to name my favorite sitcom, it'd be Parks and Recreation on NBC. Uh, sadly, it's over. And and as we were doing research for uh, the for this episode, I hadn't realized that you were. And correct me if I'm wrong. You you were the ghost writer for Leslie Nope in in the uh, the book Pawnee, uh, Greatest Town in America. Is that That's correct? correct? Yeah. Yes. So yes. Yeah. So, 
maybe explain how you came about or, or how you approached writing a fictional historical coffee table book for, uh, you know, a, a town that exists only in, in the world of NBC. Sure. Yeah. So my um, a good, you know, good friend of mine um, is the creator of that is the, one of the creators of that show, this guy, Mike Schur. And um, and he's a fan of the Memory Palace. And so for uh, at one point, he and his co-creator, Greg Daniels, were thinking about doing one of those Arcadia Press, uh, which is those, you know, sort of sepia tone, you know, uh, right. books that every sort of seems like every neighborhood in America has one. And, you know, of, of photos from the old days. And so they thought of doing a fictional one for Pawnee, Indiana, and originally kind of called me in to do like a little bit of consulting to kind of create a plausible black backstory um, that they would then kind of, you know, for historical backstory for this town. And he's like, you're a funny guy. Like, I think you, you think you, you get the spirit of the show. I think you <laughs> could do this. And um, but then the truth was like, um, you know, as he and I started talking about what the book could be, it kind of expanded and expanded and expanded and be, you know, became this kind of, you know, coffee table book that is kind of a guidebook to the town and, you know, with a history to the town and, and you know, kind of different, you know, articles about the sports teams and, and things like that. And, and he and I collaborated on those. Um, and for me, it was fantastic because, you know, I had spent my career as a journalist and, you know, doing these historical stories and the notion is, you know, just the, the freedom to be able to make stuff up um, was kind of incredible. And also, you know, I really love the show and uh, uh, really loved. It's kind of like, I think that Mike and I, I think one of the reasons why we're friends, but I think that one of the reasons why um, I was kind of a fit for the book and then, uh, you know, eventually wrote um, an episode of the show. Um, I think because there, there is like, there is a, there, there's a sort of similarity, uh, similar approach um you know to i I wouldn't you know not not history per se but to kind of like america (laughs) that i feel like parks and rec parks and rec you know takes um you know uh to the memory palace i think there's there's a little bit of kind of like a whether it's a like a hopefulness um you know or or sort of a sense of wonder that they kind of you know bring to the kind of you know quotidian american experience um, I think there was uh, some, you know, good crossover there. Well, Nate, uh, our time's just about up, uh, but thank you so much for taking some time uh, to chat with us. Uh, we're talking with Nate DeMeo. He is the podcast uh, pro- podcast producer and host and jack of all trades at the Memory Palace. You can listen to his podcast at thememorypalace.us or through all podcasting platforms, including iTunes, where you can also find The Way of Improvement Leads Home. Nate, I know it's early out there on the West Coast, uh, and we're, we're doing this on a weekday morning. So thank you for getting up early and taking the time to chat with us. It's your thing, guys. Really appreciate it. Well, Drew, I think we hit another home run with that interview. Absolutely, John. Listening to Nate DeMeo, I realize I've got a lot of things to think about as I approach my first real big writing project, my own dissertation. As I mentioned in the top of the episode, I'm really fascinated and really excited about these critical theories and and the kind of complex academic talk uh, that we get so uh, wrapped up in as grad students. But at some point, I also, as you mentioned in your story, I need to be able to tell a good story. And uh, 
so this is this is definitely something I need to sit with, something I need to think about more as I start to outline and 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 pitch my own project to my advisors. Yeah, dissertation is an interesting kind of animal, right? Writing project because at one at one point you're writing to to sort of give yourself credentials in the field. You need to know uh, about uh, other historians who you're engaging with. You need to know about, uh, you know, how to interpret the past. You need to show that and give evidence of that. And in some ways, a a dissertation is not always conducive to this kind of narrative writing. But there's also a lot of pressure on us grad students because that dissertation is so often the thing that becomes your first book that then supports your resume as you go on the job market. Yeah, that's right. I was recently talking with a uh, Princeton uh, PhD, uh, someone who's my age, has been around for a while. Uh, She was telling me, you know, that she so mastered kind of academic writing, dissertation writing, writing for other historians, that it became very, very difficult for her uh, to write uh, for the public, to write in narrative uh, form, because I think we're so conditioned as graduate students, right? It's a culture in some ways. Uh, I, I'd hate to use the term brainwashing, <laughs> but you know, we are we are kind of acclimated and assimilated into an intellectual culture uh, that forces us just to talk to our peers, and thus it's very hard when you're writing uh, narrative or when you're writing stories that you want people beyond the academy to read, uh, to be thinking about, you know, who the, who am I writing to? Who is my audience? And, you know, I still struggle with this too. Uh, I'm constantly, as I write sentences, you know, I'm constantly thinking, you know, what, what would my advisor think about this statement, right? Or what would my colleagues in the field think about this statement? And, you have to somehow make that switch to start thinking about, you know, what would someone like my dad uh, think about this? Or I recently wrote, a, uh, saw a Facebook post by my friend uh, Kate Carte Engel, where she wrote, what would my Aunt Marilyn think about this? Or how would she uh, interact with this kind of thing? So it's just a different kind of writing. I'm not trying to suggest one is more important than the other. But I think what DeMeo uh, reminds us, and if you just listen to a couple episodes of The Memory Palace, I think you realize that this is a much more powerful way, I think, uh, of reaching people with the importance of history. Well, Mr. Producer, is that a wrap? I think so. I think you summed up the problem quite succinctly. So great episode. Yes, indeed. So everyone out there, keep telling stories, keep weaving narratives about the past. And in the meantime, I hope that your way of improvement always leads home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Thanks again to Ed Ark for all of his support. Original music is by Overholt. And many thanks to our guest, Nate DeMeo. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host is John Fia.